Hello and welcome to Riffs on Riffs, where we explore the collision of original and sampled tracks and the artists who made them. I'm your host, Joe Watson. I'm here with my co-host, Toby Braswell. What's up, Toby? Nothing much, Joe. What's going on with you? Just enjoying some sunshine out here in Cleveland, Ohio. So anyway, together on this show, we listen to legendary tracks and the timeless but sometimes not so well-known songs that they sampled from. So, what do we got queued up today, my friend? Only one of the best rap anthems of the 90s. This is California Love. This iconic track by Tupac featuring Dr. Dre and Roger Troutman hit number one on the Billboard charts in 1995 and was his first hit single as the newest artist of Death Row Records. We're going to get into a little bit more about Tupac and his history, what was going on at this time in his life, uh, and where he got the beat from exactly. But we really can't talk about Tupac and California Love without talking about the West Coast sound. So we're going to get into a little bit of that as well. So, Joe, where do you think Dr. Dre got this sample from? Well, I mean, first thing that comes to mind is probably some old white dude from England, right? (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) All right, well, let's rewind a bit and find out where the origins of California Love came from. Not a ton of people may recognize this particular song, but pretty much everybody's going to know who this artist is. starting to become a little obvious who we're dealing with right now. So if you haven't guessed by now, this is Joe Conker, and the song is called Woman to Woman, which was released in 1972 off of his album titled Joe Conker. So, Toby, you know, I think it's appropriate that we're starting with Joe as we kick off this podcast, because this is a man who made a career out of kind of sampling other, performing other people's songs, which we now call sampling, I guess. Um... I tend to think of Joe as, as a stylist, right? He wasn't a guy who wrote a ton of original material, but he, would, he, he took a lot of people's songs, and he made uh, many times more popular, more well-known versions of those original tracks. So it wasn't traditional sampling the way we think of it now, but it certainly was a precursor to that. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, in fact, you know, doing a little bit of research for this, uh, uh, I'm a big fan of movies, and I know you and I, we've talked about movies that we enjoy. There's a movie called Chasing Amy. Oh, that one hurts me. (laughs) That's a rough one. Chasing Amy. In that movie, there was a character played by Jason Lee, and uh, they were comic book uh, comic book writers, right? Yeah. But Jason Lee's character wasn't the artist; he was the inker. 
right? Ah, so right. He was basically the person that just went and traced over the line. Oh, come on, don't be doing inkers like that. I'm just I'm just saying to me, Joe Cocker's career was sort of like that. He was right? an inker. He was an inker, right? He's not the originator, but he's just the guy that's gonna make it make it pop a little bit more. If you look at the songs that he's done, sure. you know, if he, he did the Beatles track and some of the other tracks, uh we'll go we'll go into a little bit uh into that. Wait, he what made was the, your what was your first impressions of Joe? What do you as a kid when when did you first hear him? Well, as a kid, it was the Wonder Years, the the, the theme song for for the show. That was it, uh, which was "Have a Little Help from My Friends," right? Which is a Beatles right. track. Yep. But to me, you know, especially being as young as I was, Joe Cocker made that song his own. Right, he made it his own. Absolutely. I don't even think about the Beatles. It was like years later when I heard that, like, oh, that's that's a that's a Beatles that's a Beatles song. I think, where did those guys? You know, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, so that's just how how uh, how talented and how distinct uh, Joe Cocker's voice is. And that's how talented he was, right? Yeah. So for me, I think um, you know, I grew up around the same time. I think we're about the same age. And my first exposure was uh, actually when John Belushi was doing his impersonations of him. There was that SNL skit where, I forget which song they're doing, um, but Joe was wearing his purple stuff t-shirt, right? Because that's the name of his band at the time, Joe Cocker and stuff. And Belushi <laughs> comes out holding, I think, a Miller High Life can and does this spot-on impersonation, like with all the weird facial expressions and body contortions that Joe would do when he sang. And one thing you knew with Joe is if he was performing, you weren't going to get cheated on that performance. He was in. Now, you know, that might have been drug-induced, but <laughs> that's all right. It was good. Made for a good so show. Right. That's right. That's right. Made history. Made, it was memorable. That and, <laughs> you know, have you practiced the leap yet with the girl? The Dirty Dancing Leap? I'm, Time of My Life with Jennifer Warnes and that song and, like, that's a thing. I feel like no, you've never tried that? I, I did it last week, but I, <laughs> I, I sprained my ankle on the way down, so I don't, don't want to talk Maybe let her it. jump next time. Yeah, I, I should do that. You're right. It's good, good advice. Good advice. All right, so let's get back to the song a little bit. Woman to Woman by Joe Conker. Um, it was co-written by a guy named Chris Staten, who has spent a kind of a lifetime as a session player, and he toured with Clapton, and you know, clearly a pretty talented keyboard guy. Um, this song was released in 72. on the. We already talked about it. It was called Joe Conker. But I don't want you to be confused here because in 69, he also released an album called Joe Cocker. And I want to make sure you get the right album here, Toby. Okay. So you know the difference. In 69, we put an exclamation on it. By 72, we're like, eh, I don't really need that anymore. So you're saying that the album that was released in 72 and in 1969, both were titled Joe Cocker. But the only difference is, is that the one in 69 had an exclamation point after it. Yeah, he's like the George Foreman of uh, musicians here. (laughs) Awesome. That's awesome. So, interestingly, the album didn't didn't chart particularly well, um, although Wikipedia does claim that the single reached uh, number one in Spain. Um, I'm not Spanish. I, I wasn't around at the time, so I don't know if that's true. But I guess if, if, if it's on Wikipedia, it's got to be true, right? Got to be true. Got to be true. <laughs> so, the other interesting thing is that, unlike a lot of his work, we already talked about him being a stylist, that Joe actually wrote the lyrics or co-wrote uh, lyrics to six of the songs on this album, including Woman to Woman. Okay. Um, they're a little weird, with lines like, you don't care if it rains or shines, as long as you know what's been going down at the local rodeo. Uh, I don't know what that means, Toby, do you? 
I, I don't either. And and being a musician, you know, us both being musicians and also folks that actually write, yeah. uh, I'm not a huge fan of this song per se. I, I'll be, just to be honest with you, especially, especially not the the lyric. We demand honesty here on Riffs on Riffs. I, I mean, I'm just I'm just saying that the song is just it's just okay. His vocal range is super high. This is way out of his range, in my opinion, uh, for him to be doing it. Uh, you'd have to be. Um, you know, taking sips of helium, in my opinion, <laughs> to want to perform this. And that can get a little tiresome, yeah, uh, I it's, would it's think. A, I would agree. It's a little rough to listen to. Right. I think that there's so many killer pieces parts of the song, which I guess would explain why people took pieces parts of the song and made really awesome tunes out of it. But yeah, as in its totality, as its own thing, it's like, whew, not a huge fan myself. So you mentioned a lot of good pieces, parts of the song, and I think that is a great way to talk about some of the other songs that have sampled uh, this song and actually uh, made some pretty memorable tracks as well. Let's get into that. Sure. So one of the things that I thought was interesting when we started to get into this podcast was where does Tupac and Dre, where do they find this original Joe Cocker tune and, and say, hey, that's, that's really cool. We want to we wanna sample that. And my guess is we, we got to go back to the late 80s and we start to look at outfits like the Ultra Magnetic MCs and, a, for example, a song called Funky. So let's play that real quick. Yo, what's up, Cool Keith? Yo, what up, Set J? Yo, what's up, Trav? What's up, Set Man, what's going on? Man, he's ready to get bit. Oh, Yo, Keith, you know what? I like this beat you brought Yo, over. Yo, told you about it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it into my Ultra Laboratory Word, and hook it, it up. Yo, it up. bust this. Now that's oh, funky. Man, no. I, I tell you, boy, we are down there. This is so funky that I'm going to send Mo back to the turntables and you're going to call the record that mix with Yo, get it now. And we're going to do this. It's funky. I know you want to run Right, that was Ultra Magnetic MC's single called Funky from 1988. Uh, and also to add to that, we have the EPMD track, Knick Knack Paddywhack, off their 1989 album uh, entitled Unfinished Business. Use the same sample. Why don't we take a listen to that? Knack Paddywhack, give a dog a bone case solo. Yo, I pass P the microphone. Nah, black, why P to each his zone? So Knick Knack Paddywhack, give the dog a bone, a yo. I'll pass you the microphone. It's me. Yes, the MC Grand Royal who loves rapping, and to it I stay loyal. I, stay loyal. I can't tell. I can't. You ain't I caught can't. up in my spell. You dwell on the other crap and sees that fell. Apart fell. from the Apart start, from the I didn't know the art of rapping. To keep the people's hands clapping, but to me. So we just listened to Knick Knack Paddywhack from EPMD, and that and the Ultra Magnetic MCs tune we just listened to were both from East Coast rappers that heavily influenced West Coast hip-hop moving forward. And we'll circle back around and get into why that happened, how that happened a little bit later. But in the meantime, let's go back to the actual chorus of California Love by Tupac. Shake it, baby. 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 
So every time I hear that part, okay, I can't help but flash memories uh, to the video that Hype Williams uh, directed. Uh, it's very, very visual, that part, right? The shake it, shake it part. You know that, you know what's happening, what's going on at that part. But, you know, in doing research, again, we realized that that, uh, that chorus from California Love wasn't originally done there. It was done somewhere else beforehand. And that song would be Dance Floor by Zap. Uh, in 1982. And the connection there would obviously be Roger Troutman. It's good, it's good to know that the uh, themes of songs haven't changed that much over just, the years. Just shake it. <laughs> shake it, baby. So <laughs> there's a few things that flash through my head when I listen to that. Sure. One is uh, you know, that whole, like, good God, like, that reminds me, A, of, of Edwin Starr when he does War. I hear a little Jungle Boogie in there, mm -hmm. and both of those things just make me really happy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So obviously the, the connection between Zap is that Roger Troutman was the founding member of Zap, and Tupac and Dre loved that sound so much. And, and again, we'll get into a little bit later how they probably grew up listening to Troutman and said, hey, Roger, why don't you come out and record this with us? And so he did what they call an interpolation, right? So instead of actually sampling from the, the dance floor tune by Zap, they actually brought Roger out in his talk box and said, let's, let's re-record the thing and make it cool once more. You're right, Joe. And the whole point of bringing Roger in, I feel, was to make the song that much better. I mean, there's no point in bringing an artist in on a song, a guest artist, if it doesn't make the song any better. And he did, right? That's one of the most memorable parts uh, of the song. Uh, so now I, I really want to get a little bit deeper into the actual song, California Love. We've talked about the sampled songs, right? We've talked about uh, Joe Cocker himself. Let's actually talk about the hit song, California Love. Joe, keep going. <laughs> you know the words, keep going. All right, we're listening to California Love by Tupac. Uh, infamous song, infamous track, 1995, 1996. Uh, you can't talk about those two years without mentioning this song, especially if we're talking about music. I mean, it, 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 as it crosses over into everything else, everything, it seemed like every other conversation, literally, 
was about if it, it had to be about hip hop. And if you were talking about hip hop, you definitely had to talk about Tupac uh, at the time, right? Absolutely. Um, there's a reason this song went number one. It was it's two times platinum in the U.S. You already talked about the video directed by Hype Williams. And can we just talk about that video first? Or both videos, actually, because there's two of them. Okay. Um, that whole Mad Max theme, which I don't quite get, um, but I love the fact that you've got young Chris Tucker in there, who tells a fantastic story about how Michael Clark Duncan saved his life by because he was overacting in one of the shoots and, like, fell out of a Jeep or something. And, of course, you know, Michael Clark Duncan's a big dude, just <laughs> grabbed him with one meaty paw and threw him back in. Wow, that's um, crazy. Deion Sanders makes an appearance. So, I mean, it's, it's iconic on so many pop culture levels, right? It actually won the Grammy for Best Performance by a Duo or a Group. Um and I think one of the other fascinating things about this is kind of the whole background of what was going on in Tupac's life at the time. He was, he was in jail. And so if you're in jail, who, who do you want to see come bailing you out, Toby? Well, it, it's funny that you mentioned that, right? This is, I guess you can answer that question in two ways, right? Who do I not want to see in jail? Yeah, right. right? <laughs> and who do I want to see, like, bail me out? Right. It's, it's one and the same. The name is the same. It's in the same case, answer. it's the same. Suge Knight. Right. Suge Knight. So, don't want to see him in jail. <laughs> but you want to see him on the other side, I want to see him, the check. Yeah, writing the check to actually bail me out. So uh, the answer is the same. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Suge Knight is, is a guy you don't want to see in prison, but you want to see on the other side. And in this case, he, he shows up, he writes a $1.4 million check, and he says, Tupac, I, I spent a lot of money here, and now you owe me three records. And so that was kind of the exchange they made. And almost immediately, I think they went to the studio and started recording. And uh, the story goes that Tupac actually wrote his lines for this song in about 15 minutes. And and it actually, it wasn't even a song that was originally meant for Tupac. It was supposed to be off of Dr. Dre's next album, which actually never showed up, The Chronic 2, which never was released. Um, but that line where he says, out on bail, fresh out of jail, that's that's legit. He literally was. He went right from jail to the recording studio and laid it down. You know, if we're talking about lyrics... And I get the, you know, I mean, I think Tupac was an amazing, uh, an amazing MC. But to me, with Tupac, we have two different uh, careers, really, right? You have career, uh, the albums that were released early in his career, and then you have the albums that were released, you know, after he died. Um, and to me, it's like a totally you mean hologram different story. Tupac. Well, yeah, hologram, right? The one that was on Coachella, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, it's, it's a. It's it's really interesting how fast that he wrote some of the songs. You mentioned 15 minutes to to write his verse. I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty talented. But if you're writing three albums worth, and I'm sure that he wrote those, he wrote more than that because we have uh, so many albums, so many songs written by this guy afterwards. Uh, and I think that's where I, kind of where I fell out of love uh, for his music. If you think about it, I think it was just too much. Yeah. And it kind of sound a lot of it after this point, not this song, but a lot of it afterwards sounded similar. Sounded like filler, you think? Well, I'll just put it this way. You know, I, I, I think that when you come up, when you have that many songs that you're doing at one time, I think the quality is irrelevant when you have that much drama around you. Because no, I think true. that, especially after he died, right? And the way that he died, you had that much drama around him. People are going to pay attention. Quality is irrelevant. I mean, it's kind of like uh, celebrity sex tapes, right? No one really cares about the quality. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. Everybody's going to watch it just in case, to be, to be honest, right? That's just pretty much what it is. And that's what Tupac's albums were. So, you know, you talk about Tupac as a tragic figure, or at least the drama surrounding. I tend to think of him as a tragic figure, and I'm not saying that he didn't bring a lot of that on himself. But um, what do you think he would be doing 
if he were still alive today? Because I think that's an interesting idea. I, I think you see a lot of people that have lived the kind of life he has, and actually a lot of them have gone uh, to being like preachers, right? So if he was a preacher, I feel like he'd probably just erase the T off of his tattoo and be and call his church Hug Life instead. <laughs> I, I kind of think that that would, would happen. Uh, and then he would have maybe the name of, uh, it'd be like the Hail Mary movement. Okay. Uh, something like that. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking. He uh, would <laughs> Toby, that's bad. That's real bad. <laughs> but there is some truth because you see a lot of these guys, you know, all this West Coast stuff was in its heyday when I was in college. And Ice T was huge at that time. Right. And he actually came to our campus and did this whole talk. This was right after he had formed Body Count and Cop Killer was going through all the, you know, Senate hearings and he was under fire. And he came and gave this fire and brimstone, hour and a half, passionate thing about, uh, about you know, everything you would think Ice-T would say at that time to college kids. And it was incredible. And now, what do you see Ice-T doing? He's playing a cop on a TV show. Right. Where else do we see him? Geico. Geico commercials. <laughs> yeah, so he's doing Geico commercials, right? Yeah, uh, for lemonade. You know, read the signs. <laughs> lemonade. Read the signs. So, I mean, first of all, we all grow up, right? You and I aren't doing stuff that we did 20 years ago, and that's a good thing. And so I guess I'd like to think that had he stuck around, maybe Tupac would be in the same place. He'd be making, you know, better decisions and more of a positive impact on things. Yeah, we can always hope. We can always hope. And if not, maybe he'd be a comedian and, and talk in third person. And his first joke would be something like, uh, what does Tupac say to the traffic jam? Lay it on me. Uh, it's okay, I get around. Oh, boy. Are you coming up with these yourself? Yeah. Well, that's it's all me. That is good, it's all me. And speaking good. of getting around, let's uh, get around to uh, the next segment. And let's talk about the West Coast exposure uh, and the influences uh, there within. All right, so let's connect some of the musical and historical dots here, right? Let's go back to these tracks whose major West Coast hip-hop sound left a ripple effect through the rest of the industry, um, including our featured song, Tupac and Dr. Dre's California Love. Okay, so to me, it's really interesting that ultramagnetic... I like how you call them ultramags because ultramagnetic MCs is really hard to say lots of times. Mm -hmm. And EPMD are East Coast groups, right? They're both from New York. Yes, sir. Um, and they clearly influence the West Coast sound. But we can go back a lot further, and let's dive down into the roots of where these guys started to get their stuff. So we talked about the Ultramags. Let's listen to their 1986 release called Ego Trippin'. Party people's in the place to be. So that drum beat is tremendous, and we've heard it five million times over the years. But this was really the first song to sample that beat, which comes from this Melvin Bliss song called Synthetic Substitution. I, I've never heard that song until we did the research for this podcast. Um, but the drummer on that track was sort of a legendary funk maestro Bernard Purdy, who was the drummer for James Brown. So let's take a quick listen to the Synthetic Substitution track. So this tune came out in 1973, and it kind of has that 70s vibe to it. But 
to me, clearly the most important part of that song is that drum beat, which has been sampled 754 times, according to who sampled, making it one of the most heavily sampled tracks of all time. Well, if we can add another heavy influence, it would have to be uh, Roger Troutman uh, as well. And we know from history that Roger Troutman uh, actually played with Bootsy, right, Uh, with the group Parliament. And also he also played with James Brown as well. So, yes, there's a very rich history. And I guess when we're really talking about it, it's we've had this conversation, I don't know how many times, uh, that music really in itself is its own language, a universal language. It doesn't really matter what coast we're talking about. The East Coast and the West Coast kind of marry each other. And it's just interesting, right, that uh, the featured song that we've been talking about, the California Love, Tupac track, you know, during that time, especially there was an East Coast, West Coast the whole big, thing. R- big riff. Does that still exist? No. No, not like Nobody that. Nobody cares anymore? No, no, not really. No one cares. It's too, it's too much money on the table. Now everybody just wants to do diss tracks personally to... Yeah. Yeah, but there's <laughs> there's not, there aren't too many diss tracks like, uh, like Tupac's uh, diss track, what, what, I think it was called Hit Em Up. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you compare that to Drake's diss track uh, uh, recently or any of the diss tracks recently. I mean, there's there's always a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Tupac did not waste any metaphors, <laughs> he came right any you. similes. You can't misinterpret it. It, it is what it is. You know, it is. Uh, but back to uh, influences, right? Uh, back to influences. So we talk about Roger Troutman. You had an interesting story about Roger Troutman uh, dealing with Ice Cube. Uh, did you want to kind of get into that yeah, story? Yeah, th- absolutely. So, like we said a couple of times now, that East Coast to West Coast, there's no way to confirm this, but it's interesting when you read some of the stuff that Cube specifically has said. Uh, he talks about the Zap tune, More Bounce to the Ounce. And I'm going to just read a direct quote from him, so apologies for not sounding like Cube, but who can? <laughs> Please don't try to sound like I'm Cube. I'm not going Go to. Go ahead. <laughs> so he says, I was in the sixth grade, it was 1980, we'd stayed after school, and we had this dude named Mr. Locke, and he used to bring in his radio with these pop lockers. And he used to teach the dance group, the LA Lockers, and he would do community service after school programs. So we knew a lot of the kids and introduced them to all the new dances. And the guys came in wearing all black and white gloves. And he put on that song, More Bounce, and they start pop locking. And I think from that visual and from seeing that, that was my first introduction into hip hop, period. I didn't know nothing about nothing. I hadn't heard Rapper's Delight yet, so this was the first thing that was really fly to me. They started dancing, and since more bounce goes on forever, they just got down. And I just think that was a rush of adrenaline for me, like a chemical reaction in my brain. So it kind of goes back to what you just said. It's a universal language. So here's a, here's a kid out in California who hears this song from a dude, you know, in Dayton, Ohio. And, but you've got that visual influence of these pop lockers and that, that impression that that makes on a kid and, and how that sparks that whole creative thing. It's pretty cool oh yeah it's, it's absolutely uh it's absolutely cool it's more than cool especially with us being from ohio being from the midwest uh you know giving roger troutman his his due uh with you know being so influential with zap and and, and not just with zap I and mean, he also influenced uh other artists as well uh, as, as time went on if you know we want to talk about teddy riley and the, the new jack swing uh and and really and how it affected today's music, right? Uh, with the, the talk box being used uh, and things things of that nature in several songs, uh, to the point where Jay Z uh, had to do had to do a song about no more no talk boxing, right? No more so, vocoders, uh, no more yeah yeah, no so more auto tune, yeah, no more auto tune. So I mean, that's just how influential 
uh, he was and how universal music is uh, as a whole. Let's take a listen to More Bounce to the Ounce by Zap, which was Roger Troutman's band, and then we'll discuss that influence on West Coast hip-hop. I think the other interesting part of this is there is a segment of the population that thinks, you know, rap producers aren't musicians, they aren't artists, which obviously you and I both disagree with. And I think what you can see here is we can trace Roger Troutman all the way back. He he was signed to Bootsy Collins' label, right? And he played on, which to me is the the best album name of all time. <laughs> he played on one Parliament Funkadelic album called The Electric Spanking of War Babies. And I have no idea what that means, but I really like it. <laughs> and yet he recognized, you know, a decade later or 15 years later that, hey, what these guys are doing is as fresh as what I was doing back in the day. And they want me to, bring, to be a part of that and to bring what I'm doing into this generation. And that's awesome, too. And so you've got this span of, you know, literally 30, 40 years where like-minded people are doing really interesting things together. And, and to me, that's what music has always been about. Totally agree. Totally agree. Keeping it fresh. And that's exactly what they did. So we've talked about some of these icons. We mentioned Bootsy, and Bootsy obviously played with James Brown, and one of the things that he took away, and he's talked about a bunch of times, it's the concept of the one. Now, what do you mean by the one exactly? So traditionally in music, we have beats one, two, three, four, right? Mm -hmm. And we're used to, in pop music, typically we hear you know, a kick on one and a snare on two, so it's boom, ch, boom, ch, boom, ch, right? And that's... And the accent typically happens on the two and the four. And, well, here, let's, let's let Bootsy explain the one. I love it. One, two, three, and you hit on the one. One, you know, one, you know. And then you would try to fit your different notes, what you felt in between that, like. <laughs> you know, and that's the funk, you know. You know, and you can change that. It's however you feel, but you just have to fit it between that space, that little space that you got, which is one, two, three, four, one, two, you know, four, one, two. So I love that we all have stink face whenever we hear <laughs> Bootsy, right? Because how can you not? But that's, he was playing a show and that was pretty much what James told him is, I don't really care what you do on the rest of the beats. I need to know where that one is. And so that became that style. And if we fast forward to California Love, that in, in the Joe Cocker tune, in Woman to Woman, like, that's what it is. It's like, and Woman to Woman, there's a lot of kind of offbeat syncopation stuff happening. But I feel like, especially on California Love, it's like we're all waiting for that one to come back around. It definitely drives the beat. It definitely is a, is a, is a beat driver, right? And, and you're right. It is. And that's so different. That's one thing, especially the, the Joe Cocker uh, tune, the woman to woman. Like you said, there's a whole lot of other syncopations going and it kind of drags it. Yeah. You know, some parts feel like it. pushes and pulls it. That's a perfect way to explain it. But you know when the one comes. Yep. Right? You know, and, and that's uh, and it's, it's comforting. I like to know when the one is. <laughs> you and me both. 
Helps me on the dance floor, that's for sure. <laughs> so we've got a very unique overlap of different talent and musicians and genres and eras. And we've talked about Bootsy and James Brown and Bernard Purdy and some of those, you know, godfathers of funk and, and Roger Troutman specifically. Well, Roger was a big proponent uh, of this device called the talk box. So in this podcast, we like to... We're music junkies, right? So at the end of every one, we like to kind of top off the show with a little bit of extra stuff. So today, our extra stuff will be talking about the talk box. So I know what you're thinking. You've heard the talk box. You've heard about it. And we've, we've been discussing it here with, with Roger Troutman, so forth and so on. But you probably want to know what exactly it is. Yeah, so in practice, it's essentially whether you're a guitarist, um, or in this case, Roger Troutman is a keyboard player, and you're taking the output from your instrument, you're running it through an amplifier, and then you've got a tube coming out of your mouth where you're vocalizing sounds, and you're combining the output of that instrument and the output of the sounds from your mouth into one sound. And so you get this weird kind of modulation where it's like you can kind of tell what people are saying, but it's got these cool effects going on. It's really cool. When used correctly, it's really cool. That's the key. Yeah. You, you, let's, uh, I want to I play one that maybe at the time was used correctly, but listening to it now kind of freaks me out. Okay. Um, so as early as 1964... There's this dude named Peter Drake who was a country singer at the time. He made a song called Forever. And he's actually, I think he's playing pedal steel, but he's, he's got some version of a talk box. So let's give that a listen. Okay, I don't know. That just, for me, that's creepy. But maybe at the time... People were digging it. Uh, we fast forward another decade, and one of the most well-known is Rufus and Shaka Khan and Tell Me Something Good. And this is another one I'm sure we'll be making faces in the studio as we listen. Tell me something good. Tell me that you love me, yeah. Love that. Man, who doesn't? Right. I'm a guitar player, and so uh, for me personally, one of the first times that I heard it was Peter Frampton. Um, do you feel like we do? And what's interesting for me about that song is, you know, he'd made this album, and, and the, I think the album version is, nobody's ever heard the album version. It wasn't until he did Frampton Comes Alive and made it into a 14-minute opus featuring the talk box that you'll re everybody recognizes this one too, I think. And then you mentioned, you know, it's good when it's used well. Right. Well, certainly that's up for subjective debate, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely subjective. I mean, if we go back, uh, you know, we, we talked about Roger Troutman, the way he uses it. There's a song called Computer Love. There's this, uh, I mean, there's all these tracks uh, that are just where he utilizes it perfectly, right? Mo Bounce the Gounce being one of them. Uh, but man, if we move on with time and it just kind of evolves into auto-tune and now we have, you know, uh, artists like T-Pain and several other artists uh, in T-Pain-like fashion using it over and over and over and over again. After a while, it just kind of becomes uh, their trademark. And it, uh, you know, for T-Pain, you know, it's funny. T-Pain, I don't really mind it so much because that's kind of his, his thing. thing. Right. Uh, but with everybody else just kind of using it as a, you know, like Little Wayne using it uh, over and over again, uh, I'm, I'm not a fan. Yeah. Not I mean, it's fan. interesting that you, 
And I think everybody does. We equate that sound, even though they're completely different ways of crafting that sound. It is, it's similar in the way that they kind of modulate the voice and all of that, uh, or the instrument. But I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't play a little bit of Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, too. And I don't really, like that one, it's literally just, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, he's not saying anything. You know, at least in these other tunes, we're... We're saying something. Uh, agree, agree, but whoa, whoa is is definitely. Hey, if you're riding a horse, uh, whoa, whoa is pretty important. I'm just saying, it's pretty important. You might be living on a prayer. You might whoa, be living on a prayer. Whoa, whoa, exactly. Where are we going? Whoa, whoa. All right, okay. So let's take uh, one last listen to California Love and how the talk box is used there. wondering if that is talk box right there you know i don't think it is the thing that i liked about that part yeah is that uh he doesn't just say it he also harmonizes with it as well and i think he you know that just shows you know musical uh i don't know his musical genius uh, to me i love i love i love harmonies when they're uh when they're utilized correctly at the right spots okay we are done with the talk box and that's it for the show Thank you so much for listening to Riffs on Riffs. We'll take you out with a final sample from Moby called Honey from 1999 that uses the Joe Cocker riff from Woman to Woman. We really enjoyed taking you through time today from the legendary rock and roller Joe Cocker to the late great rap king of the 90s, Tupac, and his iconic track, California Love. Join us on the next episode of Riffs on Riffs, where we'll be exploring a Destiny's Child hit song called Bootylicious and the origin of this 90s diva hit. Which, we'll give you a hint, it's a British rock band. It's going to be another great show. Don't miss it. Riffs on Riffs is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Producer, Julie Fink. Audio engineers, Eric Coltnow and Dave Shaw. And audio director, Michael Seifert. You can listen to more episodes of Riffs on Riffs by finding us on iTunes, Stitcher, or visit evergreenpodcast.com. And don't forget, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review. It really helps. I'm your host, Joe Watson. And I'm your co-host, Toby Braswell. Thank you for listening to Riffs on Riffs. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fall Out Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.